This is part two of a two-part interview I did with Amin Hussein and Natasha Dillon of the MTL Plus Collective. The duo has been an integral part of Decolonize This Place, FTP, and other actions and groups throughout New York City. They've helped propel the conversation about decolonization, reparations, police violence, prison abolition, and other pressing issues. Have a listen to the first part before this one, or if you're feeling a little adventurous, just dive in, because I think you'll want to hear from these two who I consider thought leaders in the field as they drive conversations in the art community and beyond about many topics people often don't want to talk about. So now let's go a little bit back to the, the timeline we're talking about. So when I first was introduced to what you guys were doing was at Guggenheim. From there, how would you chart the next steps? Like in terms of the Guggenheim was something you went back to. There were a number of protests around that because there was a very focus. Uh, there was a focus on one major issue. Well, I would just say one major site, many issues. Mm -hmm. And in that case, it was, uh, of course, Sadayat Island at the United Arab Emirates, which is where all these luxury museums and housing were being built. What was the next step? And what was it that you realized that this was going to be a long-term struggle? Do you know? Because this is not, you know, you guys could have done those protests and then moved on, done your own practice, gone into legal work, gone into whatever, you know, been accountants, uh, who knows? I mean, one of the things that we think about is prefigurative politics and the idea of living now in this thick now that, you know, you can imagine kind of has the past in it and the future is being made in it. So that presence with the Guggenheim was a lot of, we were part of a larger community. There was a diversity of tactics there. We were thinking about how to put pressure on the museum, but we were learning about institutions and how to get from the board of director to the trustees and how to have these conversations. And it was interesting because the more pressure we put on the museum in terms of our actions, touching the white walls that produce value, getting close to the artwork, making their insurance go up, them losing control of their site, brought them to the negotiating table. Did their insurance actually go up or was it just the threat of their insurance going up? Well, two things happened with, with the escalation of our actions, which were intentional. We were told that the insurance went up, right, from people on the inside. But another aspect of it is people that had given their work on loan as part of the Futurist exhibition were all calling back. They were calling the Guggenheim because they were worried about their million-dollar art pieces. And so people who may not know, the first action took place at the time they had a major show on futurism. So it was also, you know, Italian just to futurism. get a context. Yeah, just to give you a context of that. And of course, Italian futurism morphs into a version of fascism. So that was, it was a very <laughs> interesting frame yeah. to yes. see the yeah, protests. Yeah. So yes. go ahead. Um, and to present another uh, possibility or multiple other possibilities, depending on what, what, you know, how you do it. But I think the limitations there and the failures were, number one, a bunch of artists coming together without a shared politics means that you can't sustain the struggle. Or they think that, you know, it's just about the Guggenheim. So you can have a boycott of the Guggenheim, but you're not willing to boycott Israel. Or the boycott of Guggenheim, Abu Dhabi, but not New York. Right? So there's these mm. differences. And if you have a shared politics, that wouldn't be a conversation. Mm. Right? So that was one thing. Then the second thing is 
the limitations of framing things around human rights at a time when nation states are actually <laughs> not as a, they're more carceral in their nature than ever before and then the governments are facilitators of capital more than anything so mm -hmm. that the social contract has been shredded for years ago and so, I sh and I should also mention a lot of people have been very critical of human rights in general right because of the fact that it's often a way of Western governments to impose their value systems. So there's been a lot of criticality around that. So it's your entry so it's, point. Just it's, to give people a sense of context. Right? Yeah. So basically when you frame things around human rights, it seems reasonable. There is some general consensus around it and it seems to be achievable. But the thing is, is that to the extent that it's achievable and it's not that achievable, but to the extent that it is, you're buying into a structure that is already oppressive, that actually your participation in it, if you get the demands that you asked for, props up the whole damn structure. And I think that uh, the Gulf Labor one, you know, and then just and just to clarify, Gulf Labor Coalition is one entity, and then Global Ultra Luxury Faction is another entity. So it was part and of. And we'll talk about that in a second because I think this malleability <laughs> of many organizations is is something that I've thought a lot about. So go okay. ahead. Well, but I just wanted to make that difference because I think, and and it was so that we could have the idea of diversity of tactics, right? That's why it's important to have your own autonomy and. And to be able to share space in that way, like, you know, the idea of being, and which is what Amin was talking about, the idea of not about unity, but like together, but separate. So that's, I think that's the framework Makes that sense. we kind of uh, followed. So that would be the perfect example, Gulf Labor Coalition and Gulf together, but separate. And I think that apart from, apart from seeing this as like understanding how the boards function, because I don't think so a lot of people know this, we had meetings with the board of trustees and, and the director of Guggenheim for one year. Where wow. we, we How many meetings? Four. Wow. In person, four. Many email exchanges. Gulf Labor was already doing that work. They were already emailing. They were doing all of these things. And the, specifically the last meeting after the one that they decided that we won't, will not have any relations with Gulf Labor was the one where we actually presented research and ideas for what is possible. And like not just in terms of policy, but also as artistic, like ideas for artistic intervention in the system that, Can you know. Can you give us a taste of what those were? Yeah, for example, being creative around creating bills for workers who are coming from India. Like, for example, a lot of people, workers coming from South Asia, they incur costs to middlemen, you know, the right. kind of, you know, you pay money to somebody, the middleman, and then you get somewhere. And so there's a lot of debt that exists. So, for example, a lot of the problems was that, oh, these workers don't have receipts of like how the visa process went or how like you know these things and so there was like oh there's creative ways <laughs> to right. think about that and so just as a structure and i think you're also telling them so for people who don't know often workers come with these debts yeah. initially and mm -hmm. it sort of makes them almost indentured really at the end of the day because their passports are taken away these different things are sort of happening mm -hmm. so just to kind of give people a context. And, 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 and usually it takes workers two years to get out of that, right. that debt, you know. And then not just about, it's not just the passport. It's also that you don't get a living wage in the place that you're working. Right. So most of the workers actually that come in, they get a wage based on. So like, for example, at the Louvre site, right, you had workers from all different India, Bangladesh, Pakistan, Sri Lanka. They all got wages based on their countries of coming even though they were doing the same work. So actually, an Indian worker got paid more than a Bangladeshi worker, just because the minimum wage between these two countries is separate. So they knew what they could get away with, essentially. Exactly. Yeah. And so what this system also produced... Which is also, to be fair, in the UAE, Western expats get paid more than even people from the region. 
<laughs> so it's like another level of this kind of grenaded. So, but this is the world we're talking yeah. about. It's structured that way, and so you can make a win in some place, but you're actually propping up the whole thing. And I'll give you an example: Palestine. I mean, to the extent that you had NGOs and the Germans giving money, they send the head boss. That's German. The people with control, German. How? What do they get paid? German. <laughs> Salaries, salaries right. and they still can write on their CVs then that they were in conflict zones, right? And Palestine then props up your resume or CV. So this is the NGO industrial complex. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then about. Palestinians are there working too, but they don't. They're even prohibited from unionizing. Yeah, they don't get paid what these people do, nor does knowledge transfer down. Right. And in the context of Gulf also, I think that these are some of the failures. If you start, but so the whole system then gets structured around the idea of wage, right? And that's when groups like Human Rights Watch can come in and say, look, these workers are not getting paid. They're victims. They're living in these conditions versus a completely different way of looking at it. The workers are probably already organizing and they're already shutting down factories and they're already shutting down their work sites because organizing happens all the time like you keep seeing like even during this coronavirus time like a bunch of workers burnt buses in Kuwait because you know they didn't get their salary so this is a normal right. practice so then what does it mean for groups like even Gulf labor or Gulf to come in and then demand what on behalf of who right, right. and I think that's that's the questioning that also shifted during our experience with that whole Guggenheim you know Abu Dhabi project because I think what we were proposing to Guggenheim New York Too was radical. <laughs> So, so what do you think turned them off? Like, why did they all of a sudden four meetings, one year of work, and then all of a sudden they were like, "We don't want to meet with you again." I think that it was a stalling process, practice. Like, they just wanted to say that, "Oh, we work," but they were pretty much, you know, wanting to be with the Abu Dhabi government. Got it. So stalling. Very simple. Yeah, I don't think they had good faith. One of the things that I that I remember is that their demand was that they had this demand or this unspoken kind of agreement that actions will stop mm. while these conversations and discussions were So that's happening. why you call it a stall tactic. Yeah. Right. And, you know, and I think that, but the truth is the type of research that we gave them was also making the argument that other places have contracts. In other words, other institutions have contracts in the Gulf region around these cultural institutions, similarly, where the contract does protect workers and you can build an ethical museum. And there were three demands, basically, a living wage, so getting a wage based on where you are, the right to organize, so like not, you know, to be able to organize and no debt, like workers shouldn't go into debt to be able to work in these things. And these are reformist agendas. They're right. not radically right, right, right. changing the structure. So, so that are, didn't that didn't happen. And then you guys were, you guys not actually part of Decolonize, but sort of like as a more, I actually don't know, maybe you can help me. And this is what I wanted to talk about too, is the names. Mm -hmm. You know, MTL Collective. That was the first group you guys Mm -hmm. formed together. Uh What is MTL Collective for people who, MTL Plus Collective, I'm sorry, I said it wrong. MTL Plus Collective for people who may not know. So Natasha and I started MTL. Okay. MTL in 2010. And the whole idea there was that MTL is three letters, an acronym, thinking about liberation struggles, things that abbreviate into something, but we didn't want it to stand for anything. So that two things would happen. A, it would create space. And B, it will be the meaning of it is 
collaborative in the sense that we do things in the world, you hear MTL, you start thinking what MTL stands for, but it never becomes a container that limits the possibility or the agility. Mm. It allows you to keep moving. Interesting. And that's why the plus then. Now, part of what we were thinking is like, okay, but what does MTL, what would MTL be thinking about? You know, and I think it was so beautiful because it could be Montreal. Yeah, that's what I thought it was. You know, as a Canadian, I thought they're from Montreal. There you go. Like, Shout out to Montreal. You know, it could be, uh, you know, mother tongue language. Right. You know, it could be any number of things. Mistranslation something. Mistranslation, you know. And now moving forward, the product of the work that we've done and the analysis then came to materialize with Decolonize This Place, which in fact was just you know, um, an, an intervention action, and an action. an action which was taken by a decolonial cultural front. <laughs> and that's something that came right after golf. <laughs> right. So, okay. But, 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 Go but, Harag, here's, it's really important because we don't want to lose this thread. MTL then says, okay, we have an opportunity at Artist Space to create a movement commons, to take over the entire gallery, two floors, the resources, all of these things. We can't do it alone. A lot of people have been doing this work, so let it be MTL plus. Got it. But you, you, you fast forwarded a couple of years though. You know, for when you get to artist space. I mean, in, in between, mm -hmm. there was the Peggy Guggenheim action, as an example, in Venice. Mm -hmm. As a group, or what was the group that was invited to the Venice Biennale? The group that was, it was Golf Labor Coalition. Okay. So Golf Labor during, uh, during the 2015 um, Venice Biennale, mm -hmm. you guys were invited to be part of the Venice Biennale's main exhibition. Mm -hmm. By Okui and Weza. Yep. But we basically used that platform to do research. And that's when, you know, and organizing. And, or, and organizing. So that's why going to the Venice and I mean, the actions were definitely not part of that. I mean, when we started doing the actions, all our social media around our conversations just like disappeared in no time. Like it was very quick cut off for, by the institution. It took us like one week, I think. And it was it was already out. Yeah. So we did research work in India and then uh, and the Louvre workers in Abu Dhabi. And, and from that research, we came up with the report, you know, and then the Peggy Guggenheim action was actually that, that was to ask for a meeting with the board of directors and which is what happened. But was that after they stopped meeting with you or before? No, this is before. So this so is before. So then the meetings actions, with them happened after the Peggy Guggenheim Yeah, those action. actions led to meeting with so the board. So I, I was in Venice at the time. Yeah. I tagged along in terms of like, you know, I was embedded to like, you know, uh, to figure out what was going on. <laughs> It was a very um, unusual circumstance, which I think is probably the best way to say it, uh, because the group, the whole group of protesters, all of you arrived by boat <laughs> onto the landing yes. at the uh -huh. Guggenheim uh -huh. on yes. the Grand Canal. Yeah. Yes. Some of you were inside. Most of you were outside. They eventually closed the gates to keep people outside the museum. On both sides. Both on sides. both sides. Yeah. And they clearly panicked. That landing was also used by a number of people to land their boats. When we were there, I definitely saw a couple of boats turned away or deciding not to disembark as a result. But there was a lot of action. A lot of people seemed to notice it. The museum certainly noticed it. Why did you guys decide to do that? 
Well, it was on the heels of May Day, and I think that, you know, May 1st, and we had shut down the Guggenheim. It was, um, who was the name of the artist that was showing? It was their last day or two, the Japanese artist who makes paintings around dates. Oh, the uh, Ankawara. Ankawara show. Yeah. So we went in, you know, with this parachute. And our day was May Day. <laughs> That's right. what our pamphlet right. said. Opened up the parachute, shut it down. They, were, they called the cops, but they didn't allow for arrest. This is New York. But we had planned the action so we can hit them one, two. And we were fortunate enough with the Peggy Guggenheim because we shut down their landing, which is where the U.S. Embassy was scheduled to bring in food for who was the artist? That Joan Jonas. She was so Joan Jonas. Because oh, right, she, was she was the, the artist that, that year, year yeah. for the binding. And the ambassador was going to come in. The U.S. Mm-hmm. ambassador was going to come to that party. Convenient timing. Yeah. Amazing. We did not know. About this timing. It so happened. It just so happened. But what was really important is just like, they would do anything to get us the hell out. So you guys found a perfect opportunity and that's how the meetings happened. Yes. And then another thing is in terms of specifically about that board, it was a group called Saleh Docs, which is kind of an organizing group in Venice who had been already, uh, you know, protesting the kind of tourism and industry in Venice and what it has been doing. You know, we actually went to an action against cruise ships that time, you know, because of how the cruise ships are changing the level of water. So they were already organizing and they already were organizing around the Venice Biennial as well. And the structure of that like specifically you know art workers issues like security guards and things like that and so I think that's something really important we don't go to places just you know parachute and then do actions like it's really it requires you know sustaining organizing with you know where you go and what you're doing so that was uh, that was an important uh, connection that makes sense so then the Guggenheim fizzled out in terms of like them not being receptive fast forward about 2016 Mm mm-hmm was that when the Brooklyn Museum action happened? Yeah. So it was around then. So the Brooklyn Museum had an exhibition at the time. Many people don't know, decolonize this place, came as a result of that action, yeah. which was against an exhibition called This Place. Yeah, and This Place was a show, I forgot the name of the curator, but they raised a lot of money. And it was, it was a brand Israel kind of show. And Brand Israel was a way to kind of beautify Israel as a settler colonial project and say, oh, look how great it is, right? And this place, as an exhibition, took people like Stephen Shore, you know, Faisal Sheikh, a lot of very prominent kind of photographers and thinkers to Palestine for two to three months to come up with beautiful fine prints of landscape that when you saw in video, when you saw on the walls, you saw the naming of it, this very humanist approach. Oh, Palestine, Israel, right? We're not gonna take a position on politics, we're just going to show the complexity of the landscape. Which is a funny tactic that's more and more common, right? Rather than deal with it, let's make, let's show the nuance and complexity. And what was interesting about that show is that it cost a lot of money and it included 82 sources of funding most of which are either banks or NGOs, none of which came from the state of Israel, but all seem to be passed through entities that bring the money so that it doesn't trigger a kind of boycott, divestment, and sanctions obligation or responsibility, right? So there is no violation in that sense. So you dropped the bomb BDS. We'll talk about that in a second, too. Go ahead. But that was... That we was... had dropped it earlier with Creative Time. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. 
So that show, essentially, what it did was that it had these photographs and video, and in the process of showing these photographs and video, it normalized Israeli occupation. By showing Israeli settlers, it's almost like Brooklyn families mm-hmm. in the midst of olive trees, in front of their beautiful houses, whatever, and then erase the presence of Palestinians or make them small figures in, in images that are actually either you know dehumanized or whatever. And I think that it was such a problem that we had to take action. Multiple people approached us because they knew the work that we'd done with the Guggenheim. But what was interesting about the Brooklyn Museum is the fact that it's in Brooklyn. Right. On stolen land. So what does it mean to think and talk and be in solidarity with Palestine with you as a Palestinian or us as settlers or guests or whatever now have to kind of like recognize that? Because in order to talk with Brooklyn, you know, in order to address the Brooklyn Museum, you had to have an analysis that doesn't just create a single issue or exceptionalize Palestine. Right. And another thing was that already the community at the doorstep of Brooklyn Museum was resisting it because of, you know, David Berliner, who is now the president, being one of the biggest real estate developers in the area. And so when we were talking about, the, you know, the idea of decolonization and thinking about that, it's also at the point of like, you can't talk about settler colonization in Palestine without talking about it in Brooklyn. And what that means for Brooklyn is, of course, like, you know, uh, understanding that you're standing on stolen land, but also that gentrification is part of a long-term displacement strategy. And so how do you actually think of all of them in terms of an action (laughs) and how those come together? And then lastly, you know, with the Brooklyn Museum, what was also amazing was while they were doing the display show on the same floor, you had the Adjic prop show. Which is a highly political show. Highly political show. And and, then since then, Brooklyn Museum has done many political shows, right? Right. You've seen like, they're all within a certain frame. Within a certain frame. And this was on the same gallery. Right. So let me me just, for those who may not know this place, I'm just going to read a little from the Brooklyn Museum's exhibition page about it. The first paragraph begins, this place explores the complexity of Israel in the West Bank. It doesn't use the word Palestine, by the way. As, as place and metaphor through the eyes of 12 internationally acclaimed photographers. So essentially it featured about 600 photographs. And just to, you had asked about the curator earlier, it was curated by Charlotte Cotton, while the Brooklyn presentation was organized by Cora Michael, um, the associate curator of exhibitions at the time. So, so that exhibition... Clearly, it resonated with you if you're going to name an organization like Decolonize This Place after it. Now, what was the Brooklyn Museum's response to the protests? And how is it different from the Guggenheims? Well, it was interesting because I think like, you know, obviously the Brooklyn Museum claims to be part of the community and it gets, you know, public funding and and it has, you know, it's more welcoming of people of color. But I think that it was... um, But is it? No. (laughs) No. And it viewed our actions as antagonistic. And and Anne Pasternak has this history of of making things personal. She's the director at the Brooklyn Museum. And we have a history when she was with Creative Time um, along along those lines. But I think that, you know, we were trying to have a conversation and a dialogue around the fact that the Brooklyn Museum is an agent of gentrification in Brooklyn. And this is this is something that the community had been pointing out, that their first Saturday of every month actually 
you know, now involves police presence outside of the museum. This was before the pandemic. That at times it's like they started having these other shows that are catering for who lives around the Brooklyn Museum. And so even though, let's say you're from the community, you have to pay more and more money. But our point that we crystallized an approach forward for the Brooklyn Museum as a welcoming opportunity of like, in thinking about art and in thinking about your presence in Brooklyn, the community could be welcomed as part of this work that you do along these lines mm. of thinking. Yeah, and, and the, another response, I think, and we've seen it not just at the Brooklyn Museum, but overall in the, the art world is like, oh, we're having meaningful conversations. And this is about meaningful conversations, right? That was like, you know, we're open to conversations. Decolonization is not a conversation, it's an action. You right. have to do it. And I think that's why also the name decolonize this place made sense to take because it, it's a verb, right? It's not a noun. It's a verb. And it's it's that, you know, it's, it's the idea of doing. And so, I mean, there's a lot of that with the Brooklyn Museum. And since then, there's been many. Like after that, the two hiring of the white curators, the crisis is unending, even within the Brooklyn Museum or within the art world, right? So now how do you respond to people? Because I think the, one of, I guess one of the protest actions that I at least I saw was the most divisive public reaction was the protests against the hiring of a white female curator for the African art position at the Brooklyn Museum. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about that. Like, why was that decision made to protest that? How is that connected to this bigger issue? Because I think a lot of people didn't quite understand how that worked. Mm -hmm. So, you know, as mentioned already, we were already talking about the Brooklyn Museum as an agent for gentrification, but also art washing of the occupation of Palestine and being on indigenous land here. So the thing that you see with the Brooklyn Museum is that they're able to do all these exhibitions, right, one after the other that are really political, but they're not able to actually change the structures of the museum in itself. When you see, and I think there was a report that came out, that most of the workers in the museum that are people of color are usually lower staff, you know, security guards, janitors things like that. And so it was coming off the heels of, of that kind of a conversation around diversity. And so around that time to have, have a person, I can't remember her name, being a white curator curating African art, our problem wasn't that she was white. Our problem was more also, not, not that a white person can't curate African art, but it's the problem is the structure that that's happening in. And I think that's a similar problem that we're also seeing with the conversations around diversity that are happening in, in the museum. It's not just sufficient to say that a person of a specific identity is needed to curate work of that specific place, right? As a Sikh woman, I yes, of course, I can curate a show on like Sikh women artists. But once again, what is the structural analysis that you're bringing into it? And it goes back to our earlier point, art world hates the idea of class. Right. And, and just, uh, just for the people who may not know, the curator was Kristen Windmuller Luna, um, just as an FYI. Mm -hmm. That's a really good point. I think it's, I think for some people though, they were like, so some of the, you know, just to talk about some of the things I was hearing, people are saying, well, there aren't a lot of African art curators mm -hmm. in, that are black in the, in North America. I mean, like, this is, this is the thing, Rog. I mean, people need to just stop for a second mm -hmm. and just rather than try to win arguments, try to think about the problem. Mm. The problem here is that, okay, first of all, how much is this curator getting paid? You know what I mean? What are they getting paid to curate at the Brooklyn Museum? African artifacts in which you don't really know where they came from or how they got to the Brooklyn Museum, yet they're the largest amount of artifacts. The fact that we're calling them artifacts should be a problem for anyone. 
The other thing that you have to think about is like, okay, well, the legacies of enslavement on this land are part to do with then who can go and study art history when you have to have connections and relationships and look a particular way and be able to perform whiteness. Because I know when I studied philosophy, my dad about lost his shit. It doesn't pay bills and it doesn't feed you. So the idea of you going and studying art history in order to get an unpaid internship and to kiss people's asses in order maybe to get a job that you that you get paid twenty thousand dollars, but it doesn't matter because you're really getting food elsewhere, right? Because Kristen Windmiller Luna, if you look her up when she got engaged, that made it in the New York Times. So clearly we're talking about a kind of person that also went to Princeton, not personal at all. But then curating anti-colonial objects that somehow no one's willing to ask why they're at the Brooklyn Museum and what does re, you know, repatriation look like is the problem. This is a public institution that it has no public inventory of what it has. Right. And the same with American Museum of Natural History. I think that's an interesting point, too, because, you know, even if the person doesn't have money, to aspire to have your wedding in the New York Times is a certain kind of aspirational class you know, class aspiration, I should say. So that's a really interesting point. Go ahead. And then another thing I wanted to add around the Brooklyn Museum stuff and how museums have reacted, and I think it also ties to the Whitney organizing. I think people underestimate the level of organizing around Palestine and what that brings with it. So, I mean, uh, some of the effects that we've seen from the Brooklyn Museum organizing that you also see with the Whitney is that people really are targeting, the, this is the response from the museums, people are targeting us as an anti-Semitic group just because we organize around Palestine. And that's an effort that's been made. Right. You know, I think that's such an interesting point. One of the things that was interesting from that Brooklyn Museum action was, at least as an observer, as a media observer, one of the things I noticed was that was the beginning of the kind of backlash, or at least it seemed, and I'm not talking about the public, backlash from a certain New York kind of establishment. Do you know, at the time that action happened, there was kind of an awful article about the action as if like you guys were anti-art. It was, I mean, it was actually a little unhinged to mm -hmm. be quite honest. And the museum never responded. They never defended young artists doing these actions, which really, I have to say, as someone observed, really worried me. Mm -hmm. But it did give me a sense of what's coming down the pipeline if you guys continued and you did continue. So now fast forward to artist space. Artist space, I mean, that was a pretty, Difficult year, 2016, already for a lot of people. It was right in the fall of the election. This was happening. I remember, you know, even asking you about that. I said, I think at the time, I mean, I said something effective like, well, if, you know, if like with this happens, what's going to happen? Does it matter who wins? And I think you said something in effect, it actually doesn't matter who wins because they're similar. I have a little bit of an issue with that because I think as much as yes, it's true, but there's also an impact of that. You know what I mean? Like, I think there's like both things happening at the same time. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that fall. I mean, see, the thing is, is it really is about types of organizing, that there's reactionary organizing and there's visionary organizing. I didn't mean that things, you know, obviously right now you would love to see on a Democratic ticket, <laughs> which, you know, you would love to see a Bernie. Not because he's any salvation or solution, but I think like he's on a path that you can push right. versus we're we're in civil war right now. Like that's what's going on. So the analysis is a little bit different. 
But in, in the stakes, are in, in a way, it's temporality. It's not stakes. The stakes are always high. But the temporality of it is a little bit different. What it demands of us is also much heightened. In other words, it takes generations for revolutionary consciousness mm-hmm. of just, you know, how do you kind of relate to each other? But I think what's happening right now is this, like, you know, when we had that conversation, it's about the visionary organizing and power finds different ways of controlling us and extracting and, and limiting mm-hmm. our lives. So Grace Lee Box talks about visionary organizing. How do you kind of delve deep, have an analysis, make these kind of connections? Everything is 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 action oriented and it's what we do in our communities that has a larger impact. And in that sense, it didn't matter. I think what it forced us to do is then, you know, we're on a confrontation path with a lot of the art world. Because in a way, you know, I mean, part of why Whitney was easy to organize is because you just did J20. Because that was 2016. Oh. 2017. 2017. Art world. Oh, my God. Fascism is here. Fascism has been here. It's just impacting your ass right now, which gets back to the whole class thing and and the race and the gender. So come on. I think that's what we were talking about. What was most important about artist space is that our analysis was already in place and the decolonial formation of groups in which they don't separate between aesthetics, politics, action, organizing, analysis was already coming together around strands of black liberation, indigenous sovereignty, free Palestine. Why free Palestine? Because it's not an exhaustive list. It's free Palestine because we live in a Zionist city. So, so this is the litmus test for and what does it mean? This art world. For what does it mean to be radical? So, do you want to explain what that means for people? Because I think the word Zionist sometimes, you know, triggers people, for lack of a better term. Meaning, like, because people have a lot of associations that often come from things they've heard from other people. So, do you want to explain what that means to say we live in a Zionist city or we work in a Zionist? There's artwork? generations of Zionism, okay. right? As far back as Theodore Herzl that politicized, you know... Who's the philosophical founder of the modern Zionist movement, right. for those who may not know. You know, but, but in general, Zionism is a political ideology that, was, that, wed is, that weds national aspirations with religion. In that context, points to an area on a map and says, this is a land without a people for a people without a land. Right. That's it. And that is something... You can have Palestinians who are Jewish. You can have other people who are Jewish of color or not. But as a religion, right, that's very different than the, than the project of the state of Israel, which is a settler colonial project, identical or quite similar to the United States. In fact, they're an extension of each other. We're complicit with this occupation here because it's unceded territory. Similarly over there. That ideology of somehow we need to find peace and coexist, that's just recipes that we've told the indigenous people here, only to what? Genocide them and render them invisible. And as far as COVID-19 and the coronavirus, they're the people that are suffering the most because they've been limited on small territories of land. So we're not talking about anything. So just for people who may not know, Navajo Nation, for instance, reputedly has the highest rates of infection, higher than any one state. So to kind of give you an idea, and and it's also a place that's 40% of the population doesn't have access to running water. So go ahead. So that Zionism, you know, which the United, with the United Nations at some point wanted to call it racism, 
right? Mm -hmm. But the United States withdrew from that conference. Like, that's the level in which we're talking about Zionism as an ideology as something that it should be pushed away from what does it mean for liberation struggles? What does it mean for care? What does it mean for generosity? What does it mean for living together? And so people have tried to label us anti-Zionist, but it's based on this idea of being anti-Israel, somehow being anti-Jewish. Right. And those things are not interchangeable at all. So what if I were, what if we had someone in the room, because I'm sure we've, we've all met people that will say this, they're like, that's anti-Semitic, what you just said. I probably won't be in the room with that person. <laughs> Because, no, and, and I'm dead serious, because that kind of, that is oppression. Like, that's oppressive. And just like we're anti-racist, we are anti-Zionist. And that notion of somehow you can have that ideology, right, is just not acceptable. In other words, I don't need to convince you what you need to think, but I don't need to share space with you. And you don't need to be in my business. Absolutely. That makes sense. Just one thing I wanted to bring up. I think the the point that you're talking about, uh, the idea of decolonization being not taken on or the idea of not responding, I think it also goes to this point around Zionism as well. But I think it's a deeper point around unsettling. It, it's an unsettling term. Decolonization is about unsettling everything. So what it actually requires is to actually unsettle your own position within the system. And that's a task that not you know people don't want, and 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 people think that these are binaries, right? The either either you're with the system or you're not. That's not the case. You can actually be a professor or be an artist or be a curator and still be working in a decolonial world, or be working to produce a decolonial world, which is basically many worlds, and you know it, it's not built on these kind of inequalities. And so I think that one of the reasons why also is because it does unsettle everything. And I, I do think that people are fearful of that idea. Whereas if you look at what's happening today, for me, that's the only way possible to get out of this mess. Right. There is no other solution to this. And the reason why it's really important to define what Zionism is and connected to settler colonization now is because, you know, places like India are taking up that model. And, and you see that. I mean, mm. India's like biggest collaborator in terms of military equipment is Israel. Right. All these all these, you know, technologies that we see, you know, from our phones to our, you know, surveillance, a lot of it is produced by, you know, companies in Israel. A lot of that is getting used. And you're seeing the model of settler colonization now being implemented in places like Kashmir. Right. And so that's why it becomes important to really unsettle the structure. And then it engulfs everything, universities, art institutions, our workplaces, all of these things. And so that, I think that idea of decolonization, the one that where we have this decolonial formation, which includes all these different strands of struggle, indigenous sovereignty, black liberation, free Palestine, specifically being in New York City, degentrification and the idea of the global wage worker, which basically means that under capitalism, we're working for institutions all over the place. There is no idea of the nation state, right? So those five points you brought up, yeah. by the way, were the five pillars of the the group's at work space. at artist space. And we so added again, dismantling patriarchy to it. Oh, so that's, <laughs> a, that's the, the sixth. That's, that's the sixth. sixth. So yeah. the first five, let's just go through them for people who may not know. It was Free Palestine, mm -hmm. Black Liberation, um, Wage Workers, and that, Native American Struggles. Degentrification. Degentrification. And so the, then now the sixth one is dismantling patriarchy. Dismantling patriarchy. 
Wow. Those are okay. Those are ambitious. But remember, remember, Hrug, these are ambitious because they're not they're not about a, a demand. They're about an ethos by right. which you can act in the world. Where you see, you know, you you talk about Audrey Lord, and it's like there is no single. We don't live single issue lives. Why would we fight single issue issues? Like just intersectionality. Like, oh, yeah. Intersectionality yeah. put into play, and I think that. The context specificity requires us to think of the stolen labor or bodies, depending on what, and the stolen land. These are the two pillars mm. of capitalism in the United States. So there's debts owed that way. You can't just be anti-capitalist. Right. Because what does that mean at a certain point, right? Because gentrification itself... Or include diversity in capitalism. So I want to share a little bit of my experience at the artist space venue. Hyperallergic sponsored a, a photocopier because you guys had invited us to do something. And we were like, you know what, we'll just we'll reach out to materials for the arts and bring you a photocopier that ended up not working very well at all. <laughs> but it looked Whatever. good. Whatever, <laughs> it looked good for a while. Um, you know, we were like, okay, this way you guys can use it like as a media company. It made sense that that's how we'd be like, hey... Just get it out there. And it didn't work. Whatever. <laughs> but one of the things, one of the things that I, I really, I think was very stark for me, having covered a number of protests at that point, was how the tone shifted very much when the Palestine protest happened. At that time, Art Is, which is a, a U.S.-based organization that focuses on artists in Israel, you had done a protest to their offices, which was roughly about 10 blocks away, mm -hmm. something like that effect. The thing that shocked me was when I went to go cover that protest, there were police. I asked you, I said, did you guys get notified or notify the police? And you were like, nope. I called Artis. I said, did you guys notify the police? And they said, no. Where the hell did the police come from? But then I started asking around and people said, actually, that's pretty common. Mm. When the issue of Palestine comes up, the police show up. Mm -hmm. Somehow they're monitoring social channels or something and, and they figure it out and they were there in full force. They didn't really want to talk to me as a, as a reporter. I tried, you know, to be like, hey guys, why are you here? Like, what, what happened? Did someone tell you? <laughs> they couldn't, they didn't answer anything. The same thing also happened though, in, in something interesting, I should say, not the same, which was during some of the Puerto Rico related events, there were, there were like, ICE officers outside, which yeah. is, of course, ridiculous because it's Puerto Rico. But, um, <laughs> but second of all, I asked the Puerto Rican organizers, and they said, this is super common. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I got to say, as somebody who's covered protests, those were super stark examples for me. In a way that, I mean, this was like, I mean, it's one thing if you're protesting a bank. I would assume there were these like things, but art spaces and no offense, artist space is a pretty rinky-dink art space. It's a nice <laughs> space, but it's not like on anyone's radar outside of, you know, the art world. Let's yeah. be honest. Yeah, yeah. What the hell was that about? You know, I think, I think it's telling when the last, the ninth week of art and action against the Whitney, where we went to Warren Kander's home, tons of police, right? But it was a white shirt officer that came up to me and said, so you tell me, how did you all come together? What the police are paying attention to, and you could see with the FTP organizing, counterinsurgency tactics. What's, what's concerning to them is why would people fighting for Palestine come together with people fighting for black liberation against police brutality, come together around indigenous sovereignty, and target the Whitney 
and then go to Warren Kander's home. They didn't make sense to them at all. And Puerto Rico. And if you're able, because you can think of the Rainbow Coalition and you can think of Fred Hampton, who was murdered in his own home, they pay attention when people come together on revolutionary bases. That's what's scary. Because the ninth week also, it wasn't just like, you know. So when we talk about the ninth week, that's now we're fast forwarding to the mm -hmm. Whitney Museum, mm -hmm. uh, 2019, the nine weeks of action in response to discovering that the vice chair of the Whitney board at the time was one of the owners of Safari Land, which manufactures tear gas and other munitions. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, and I think the ninth week also, it was, you know, it also brought in groups that would never go into an art museum. Like a lot of groups who actually came for the actions, they don't care about the Whitney as an art institution, right? And we were actually in the middle of that conversation. On one side, there were people who were like, oh, why the Whitney? It's the most progressive. We got to save the Whitney. It's the only thing we have. And then on the other side of the spectrum, actually, the communities that are impacted and are organizing have never been to the Whitney, will never go to the Whitney, it does not matter. But it does matter that somebody at the Whitney is funding, is providing equipment to the NYPD, or is, you know, it has tear gas in, uh, in Tawana border. And yesterday, the tear gas that was used in Minneapolis was, you know, Warren Candace tear gas. This is, this is somebody who was part of the Whitney community. And so I think that that is the threat. And then apart from that, during the Whitney organizing, it was also the governor in Puerto Rico got thrown out. And in fact, the same day when the governor of Puerto Rico like, was forced to resign was the same day Warren Candace also resigned. That It was the same, literal same day. So I think like, you know, the, the shorter, even the shorter answer to your question is just like people of color, indigenous, black, POC, when they're organizing, their, their thing has to be somewhat anti-imperial, which the United States is an imperial power. It has to be anti-colonial, which the United States is a colonial power. Those things, so, so that you're not just addressing a simple issue, you're questioning a foundation. And if you know the history of police, you know that they, they you know, the modern day police that we have today comes from like, you know, slave catchers, slave patrols, these kind of things. Like its history was always around property and protecting property, right? So they talk about community, they talk about protecting us but they're protecting a particular class and rooted in that ideology is the protection of property. And you see it play out even during the pandemic, actually, it's heightened. So I think that our organizing is effective because of who it brings together. And it's radical because it's not taking money from NGOs and doing grants. And then on top of that, you see that quite often the same people are responsible for a lot of shit all across the world. <laughs> Right, right. And that those become then easy ways to also like, I mean, the colonial wound that's shared by so many of us, I think a lot of us see it and feel it. And that's really the bond that builds where it doesn't matter whether you're going for like anti-police, like an abolition kind of a march or you're going for an immigration one because they all are for a world that does not have borders, police. Like it's an imagination of a decolonial and an abolitionist world, which is the only thing that makes sense during this pandemic time. And so I think it becomes from our side, it doesn't matter whether you're going for a Palestine action or you're going for a Puerto Rico one, as long as we understand as a shared kind of a thing that our, you know, our, our, our liberation is either collective or non-existent, right? It's not that, that Palestine will get freedom first and then Puerto Rico. It's part of the same struggle. It's not wait your turn. Yeah. That makes sense. I, I really appreciate that explanation. 
Now I want to talk about, because I think it's it's a little hard to do the chronology here, because I think this is what you're sort of suggesting. They're all so intertwined, so even telling them in a linear way isn't going to really do justice to these issues. So one of the issues I definitely wanted to talk to you about was how all these names show up. I had never encountered the fact that these sort of the names that show up, whether it's the Gulf Ultra Luxury Faction or MTL or Decolonize This Place or FTP, which some people may not know, it stands for Fuck the Police. Is that correct? Fuck the police, feed the pe- people. people. Fight the power. Fight the power. Okay, fuck so the it's, president. Fuck, fuck the, the pipelines. Pro- so it's many of these things. Yeah. So. Fuck, fuck the patriarchy. Fuck the patriarchy. Okay, those are all good. But I think people perceive it, or at least that's the way it's been positioned, has been fuck the police. At mm-hmm. least that's initially. Um, now, why? I have my own thoughts, but I'd love to hear a little bit of your thoughts about why is that? Why? What, what is this? What is it? Every time we turn around, there seems to be another group forming, and then another group later, and what's that all about? Well, because the same group can't be organizing on the same thing. These these things are context-specific. And so the organizing must respond to that context. Mm-hmm. And so when we're organizing, let's say, around the Guggenheim, it's not just that it's just artists that we bring together. We also brought together students at NYU because there's also an NYU Abu Dhabi, which is part of the same system. And they're facing tuition uh, problems over here. And they're already organizing around a fair wage campaign. So when we did the Guggenheim organizing, it, it was artists. It was, you know, those students, but also groups like Taxi Drivers Alliance or, you know, South Asia Solidarity Initiative. So none of this and that and it's a really important point because none of this work is done by us, be it eight, ten people. It's relationships and we work with relationships and relations. And so that requires a new like not a new, but like a different formation every single time. And so for that example, like actually the FTP work that you see comes off of the heels of the Whitney organizing. Right. And even with the Whitney, we were just facilitators, but it was more than 30 groups uh, who were part of that. And everybody had their own autonomy to do the action that they wanted to do or what they wanted to see in that day. And I think that, uh, yeah, so that's that's really why, because the organizing is context specific. So it can't just be me and, you know, I mean, organizing these things. And so this is the work of many groups and many people that, that we are talking about today. Yeah. So. One And just to add to what Natasha said, one of them is because movements need to keep moving and because name become, names become nouns and nouns start having value and they capture power and they could become targets, then you always want to not be attached to what you create because that's how they get you. You know what I mean? Like they, 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 can, they can encircle you, but they can also... You know, um, there's ways in which if you stay stagnant, they can come at you. And, mm-hmm. I, and I mean that either not just as police, but counterinsurgency tactics or if the art world doesn't like you, any number of things. What we've done is like MTL is me and Natasha. That's a space. It's mm-hmm. a space of thinking, of dreaming, of imagining. A lot of things can come out of that, but then you create new formations And they're always context-specific with a certain analysis, a strategy, and they move. So when we did, you know, when we moved from, like, MTL to say, what are we going to do? Okay, we're going to do Global Ultra Luxury Faction. We came up with that. With MTL was a participant in that. Mm -hmm. So we can always retreat. 
but we're also kind of forming this, and so there's a distance between MTL and, and global ultra-luxury faction. But then you go and you, we, we've made other, other things like Direct Action Front for Palestine, you know, that dropped 90 feet, you know, by 45 feet banners off the Manhattan Bridge, like actions that have happened that are significant. But at the same time, that also fed into the, the, the kind of black liberation ties that then came together around the Brooklyn Museum and the decolonial cultural front. But then we wanted to say, okay, well, decolonize this place. What is it? And in a way, it's a decolonial formation that has all these groups, but it also has a facilitator called MTL+. And decolonize this place looks at the Brooklyn Museum and assesses the situation turns around and looks at the Ford Foundation and reads the situation, then says, okay, what's happening in the city? Because we don't, we also know, in, you know, art institutions are part of a larger society and it reflects these same kind of ideologies. So what are we doing in the city? Okay, we're coming up with FTP with other people, but those have a whole set of community agreements and politics to them. That means that we honor those relationships, like Natasha said, earlier with the Zabatistas. This is how we move together. We move together, but separately and in agreement. And these, these acronyms, in a way, are about different steps that we're taking in the world. Mm. And one more thing, and I think this is really important specifically with starting of decolonize this place is we also started uh, and we've never worked, but, but the idea that we don't work with politicians or, or NGOs. And those are really important points for this kind of a formation to emerge. Because I think a lot of people from the organizing background and from doing this work, there's a lot of, you can see how NGOs and politicians actually come and co-op movements and take them and actually end up destroying them. And so the way we work or to think about it is the idea of decolonial solidarity. Or what does being a political accomplice mean when you're a guest on stolen land? Right. Which means that if a conversation starts around like movement, like indigenous sovereignty has to be the place that we start from and, you know, acknowledging that. And then like, you know, so and then you go on. And I think that's the kind of solidarity that we all we built where there is no question about that. Mm, that's a good point. <laughs> you know? So I'm going to I'm going to offer my take a little mm, bit. Uh-huh. I love this. <laughs> I love this. Well, I mean, I think part of it is I think the art world and I think the art community, because I think you guys initially come out from that, or at least some of this work has comes out from there. I think there's a lot of value placed on brands. And I think as much as decolonize this place becomes its own kind of brand, obviously, you know, that's just the way the media and all this sort of stuff works. There is sort of seems to be, at least from my perspective, an interest in sort of playing that down and turning out the focus away from that. The other thing is, I think, being art people and artists, I think there is an aspect of like creating something and then letting it go mm-hmm. and live in the universe. Yes. Do you know? Absolutely. I think there's there seems to be because you know I have to say for a little while for a few years I was confused what this was all about. Do you know? Like why would you do? Th- why would you create another organization and then like another act? And I just remember writing the stories and being like, wait, who did that one? I have to figure out what what was the name of the organization? Who is the coalition? Like it became this kind of almost like a little joke for myself. So I knew when I was covering protests, first thing you do, find out the name of the organization covering <laughs> doing this because I couldn't keep them right. I couldn't keep them straight oh all the time, God. which I thought was pretty you know, funny. But it was also like helped me think about some of these issues in different ways. So I'm just throwing that out there. 
What do you think of that interpretation? We love it, and it's yeah, true. Yeah, okay. It's well, that's good to, good to know. Sometimes I'm paying attention. <laughs> so now I want to finish this with talking about the Whitney mm. and the way forward now. Mm. Because you guys are in the midst of the pandemic like the rest of us. The Whitney, at least from the outside, feels like it's a real watershed moment, mm -hmm. at least in terms of, you know, community, maybe even investment, because I think so many activists and protests go on and then don't have anything to produce, you know, and has like a little bit of thing and doesn't have the long term commitment. But you guys were so focused. I, I mean, I almost was a little taken aback. In December, when, you know, after the the feedback from, like, the article we published, the Whitney staff letter, all of a sudden, you guys in a few little few weeks later, or I can't remember the exact timeline, start talking about this. And I was like, whoa, what's going on here? You know, like, nine weeks of action? Like, what told you that that was the issue? What was it about that, that you guys are like, I'm going to spend three months of my life essentially organizing this. I mean, this isn't like you guys are just doing this in the evenings for an hour. I think that the reason why we did nine weeks, we called it from crisis to decolonization, you know, and we are still working through that, which is, you know, the idea of decolonization or the idea of this, these are things that, you know, you work through movements and struggles, but like we wanted nine weeks to show people what that could mean in action actually enacting the world that we imagine in action. If you came to any of those gatherings, it looked different each and every time. It wasn't an action. It was in a gathering of people collectively saying no to something. Mm -hmm. Refusal of a world that we see. So the, the framework for the nine weeks was from crisis to decolonization. And one of the reasons why we wanted to do that to, is actually to enact this thing that I just talked about where our, 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 uh, our liberation is either collective or non-existent. Right. Because once again, the kind of campaign when it started or like the kind of problem that emerged was like, look, this guy is his tear gas is being produced, you know, is being used on the border. But then, you know, you see that tear gas being is being used in the prisons. It's, it's used in Palestine. It's used in Egypt. It's used in Ferguson. And then automatically these things start connecting. And we really thought that that would be a placeholder for all our struggles to come together. Very similar for, you know, the American Museum of uh, Natural History. That is also another place that offers because it's a colonial view on the world. And then you have those structures present. And so that's why the nine weeks made sense because it allowed space for each of our collaborators to actually put forward what's going on. And so when we say, when you went for the Puerto Rico protest, at that time, it was the height of what was happening in Puerto Rico. Right. And then that Puerto Rico thing is connected to Candace, which is connected to the art world at large, which is also connected to Palestine and also being on stolen land. So we thought that nine weeks, <laughs> you right. know, from the tear gas, yes, that's the crisis, but decolonization is the response. I just want to mention that the time uh, Hakeem Bashar, our reporter, was covering a number of those protests, and he had mentioned that the the police presence for the Palestine protests are always more. Yeah. I just yeah. want to yeah. mention that. I remember you wrote on Twitter, uh, you tweeted, uh, you know, oh my God, you know, something like that. And you were you were just like nine weeks, <laughs> you know, and it, and it was all that. But but the, well, I mean, nine weeks. I mean, this is not like you know exhibitions in the art world yeah, last shorter than nine weeks. Yes, you know, just. Yes. <laughs> but you know, moments of rupture last around three months, and not and those nine mm. weeks were kind of like that. You know, Occupy lasted about that much. Um, the pandemic, you're seeing it. it people can't. The duration artist space was three months. Right. These durations, they're possible. Hurricane Sandy and Occupy Sandy, that organizing lasted two to three months. But there was also the Whitney Biennial. 
that could cap it. So, so you're escalating towards a date that pressures the Whitney and, and creates a, a decision dilemma for them. So they're waiting for the good coverage and they have to contend with all of these issues. The other thing that was important about nine weeks is that, remember, for us, we wouldn't have, like, we care about these institutions to the extent that they could be spaces that are welcoming for our communities and our dreams and aspirations. So this is not just using a museum. But in thinking about the, these nine weeks, what was most important for us is can we build the kind of relations and deepen them so that people in the art world can begin to understand that class is a problem and that race often conceals issues of class. Because this biennial was unique in the sense that young artists, IBPOC, these kind of things, contemporary museum. So you're not talking about the American Museum of Natural History. You're not talking about the Brooklyn Museum. You're talking about American contemporary art. There isn't something that needs to be repatriated. <laughs> you know, the land <laughs> repatriated or something like that. So, so there is all these issues that for us and where the Whitney stands and what kind of benefit it gets from the, from the government in terms of being in the pipeline underneath it, the spectra pipeline. And, and what it done to create... Which is a natural gas pipeline, for those who don't know. Yeah. Right. And creating the galleries that move to Chinatown. So that problem where you can the look at Canal Street and even Williamsburg, right? Mm -hmm. And what happened to like... So there was so much there that was really like its horizon and its stakes mm -hmm. were much higher. And every, every organizing group brought a different perspective on it. It was, I, I was impressed. I mean, I have to say the perspectives and the focus of the protest being specifically about those issues was kind of, I, I mean, in an yeah. art space was pretty unusual. You know, like just for example, if you look at some of the weeks, like for example, one of the weeks was organized by students. It was called Queer Youth Power. And what these students were doing was actually comparing the board of universities to the board of these museums, right? And so you will see similar names. Warren Canders is also at Brown University. Larry Fink, you see similar names that are part of all these establishments. And so that was one week. Puerto Rico was another mentioned. Palestine was another, um, you know, the tear gas was the final day was, you know, we started with tear gas, but we also had Chinatown, uh, you know, Art Brigade who did a whole action around mm -hmm. Chinatown and gentrification and then came and connected that to the Whitney. Yeah. And I'll play a, I'll play a, a little track from that now so people can hear some of the action that was going on during the Chinatown Art Brigade mm -hmm. tour of Chinatown. Mm -hmm. Great. So in terms of what has happened since those nine weeks and us being here in the pandemic, I think a few things. One of them is decolonization is more urgent than ever before, mm -hmm. right? You know, and, and I think we've repeated this with all these different institutions. It's not just about the Whitney. We talked about Brooklyn Museum. We haven't talked that much about, about the American Museum of Natural History. But the kind of, you know, if you look at three of them, right, all together, the American Museum of Natural History is the easiest for people to fathom because it's like, oh, yeah, there are colonial objects. And, oh, yeah, we see these dioramas and these are clearly racist. So, therefore, yes, that makes sense for that to be a decolonial commission. But the Brooklyn Museum, it seems a little bit less, you know, because it's like, okay, it's half well, public. Or yeah, and also people have trouble looking at a Picasso and seeing it as racist. But they can see, you know, but a colonial <laughs> yeah, object yeah. has already been labeled for them. Right? Exactly. Because it's colonial yes, or whatever. Yes. But somehow a Picasso, they can't see racist. And then, yeah, and yeah. then with the Whitney, <laughs> it was very clear, how can contemporary art be racist? Wait, we're modern. 
you know, being modern is not being racist. And really seeing this modernity thing play out as a modernity is not part of colonial infrastructures or it doesn't come from that or is not the root of that is you see it and I think with the Whitney that was a very important moment to say that no even the most progressive of our institutions need a structural overhaul and the Whitney is no different than the Brooklyn Museum or the American uh, you know or any of these like kind of old colonial museums in that way yes they are better you know they're better places they provide spaces right they, but 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 you know in the it, yeah so just that and then the last point was around um, pandemic. I think for us, it's, you know, we, we're going to continue the same work. You know, I think that that doesn't change because decolonization is about doing. And then the second thing is, you know, we were talking about the pushback against decolonization. And I think there's something really important that we've seen is that the pushback around decolonization is actually most on giving up power. But it is getting very easily Come, uh, being part of the art world in terms co-opted. of co-opted by the oh. art world in terms of this decolonial turn that you see everywhere. So can we talk about that a little? Like, I mean, I don't think there is a single white academic who doesn't use the term decolonial at a certain point in the art mm-hmm. world at this mm-hmm. point. Mm-hmm. What's going on? I mean, I mean, I think I think their thinking around decolonial is that it's separate from decolonization, and that decolonials, uh, de- like the decolonial and the decolonial turn, is just about thinking about knowledges. Right. And so but in that context of of the museum and what they're thinking about is like, oh, yes, we can curate anti-colonial, decolonial, whatever you want. Any flavor will give it to you in, in the best example you can see with the Brooklyn Museum, with the American Museum of Natural History. When we articulated a decolonization commission, we articulated a process and one demand, the demand is to change the basis upon which the conversation is being had by these institutions, to open up space for stakeholders to be at the table, so that Anne Pasternak and the Brooklyn Museum doesn't tell us we'll have a conference about gentrification and then you can go home, but actually talk about how the museum can mitigate gentrification in the neighborhood and how um, bodily knowledges and other knowledges can be part of the curation or the way you hold things. And what, what they consistently have done is not engage in a conversation in which they even have the prospect of sh- sharing control or losing some control, mm. right? Whether it's in relation to the workers that just got furloughed and, and, and let go, right? They just made a decision. You know, but it's okay for them to get paid millions or for Anne Pasternak to get paid 600000 or for, you know, the person at the Guggenheim to get paid a million plus. But you let go of who? POC, right? The people, the, the educational, <laughs> the people in the educational department that actually give some context for the nonsense that you're showing. Right. Right? So you think about all of these things and it's like they're always trying to save themselves by commodifying and in and taking what's hot. But the thing about decolonization is that it produces the kind of organizing that we're engaged in. And what the pandemic has done is accelerate this for them. Because if they think that they can just be online or open their doors as if nothing happened, that's not what's going to happen in the city because the killings are increasing. The land is more important than ever. They just let go of all of these workers. Where are they going to get money from and on what conditions? 
what is what is going to be the market and who's going to participate in it everyone's pissed off people we never imagined being pissed off or pissed off mm. and very shortly i also think that the 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 decolonial turn spin is much more around race identity and di- the idea of diversity versus it actually being and you know including class warfare as well, well and so what you're seeing that's a now great and that's then a great yeah and i think what you're seeing right now is that with the decolonial turn or however people are using that word it's really just mainly a priority on identities or on race or these these kind of colonial histories that need to be rediscovered but none of them are about the present or the future right well, i've also noticed something about the art world i don't know what you guys noticed but so many of the people of color in the art world come from very wealthy backgrounds. So even when we're talking about and I and I have to say as somebody sometimes I I get guilty of this too like everything gets so put into a certain lens in the US not understanding these struggles are global. Mm-hmm. So when we're sometimes mm-hmm. using very US specific mm-hmm. language we're actually excluding the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. Do you know so mm-hmm. that that happens that's a really good point. I appreciate you bringing that up. So now are you guys happy with what happened at the Whitney? not happy well how do you see that connected in terms of the through line into what you talk a little bit about like the crisis and how it's this has been accelerated whitney one year later whitney one year later let me let me just say that again we're happy in terms of the relationships that it built and the power and and the and the questions that it poses for communities at large and the unsettling that has happened i think that there were disappointments one of the disappointments was how the people in the biennial felt like there's only one type of action that they can take right which is withdrawal or not and somehow if you withdraw you make the curator look bad or the way they've isolated michael rakowitz of like you're showing off because you you have the privilege of not participating which i have to say i'm going to i never understood that critique of michael but, but and I'm not saying you're saying it, but I never understood that because as if anybody who doesn't like who's showing at the Whitney Biennial is not privileged anyway. Do you know as if like this was like I just I, I just have to say that because yeah. it just it drives me crazy that people say stuff like that. We anyway. heard so many arguments that are that felt just disingenuous or short-sighted or coming from a place of being unsettled and not really kind of having a disconnect between the t- the nature of the work you make and the nature of the moment you're a part of and i think that we saw that tension but what was most important for us and what got misrepresented as decolonize this place was also making demands on artists and what we we never wanted to make demands on artists and we were very explicit about that but we we did say people need to act in the ways that made sense through a diversity of tactics. They could have put out a statement. They could have covered their artwork. They could have been there next to it. They could have done any number of things. That As artists, we were supposed to imagine a hundred different... Failure of imagination, yeah, exactly. right? right? Yeah. So then to add to that, and they had leverage, and I think artists often confuse things. There's leverage once you're in a show. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, the other thing that I think was unfortunate, and I, I don't think I've ever said this um, publicly, but it was disappointing for the artists who withdrew once it kind of forced Candors to resign or put the pressure in another stratosphere. They were quick to say, okay, now our artwork can remain. What this calls into question is the nature of solidarity. 
the solidarity of the action and its terms were dictated by all of these groups that have come together and said, here's, and, and, and the staff that organized internally. Those demands should have been what was highlighted once people withdrew. But as soon as Candor's was removed, they ended the crisis that the right. Whitney was in. They could have easily said, okay, people, now what should we do? And that was a missed opportunity. That's a, that's a really interesting point. Now, again, this is not about one-upping each other, but we're talking about missed opportunities. Mm -hmm. I think that a year later, the Whitney is an open file. And so, and the pandemic has actually brought to the foreground the questions that we posed, which is, who are these institutions for? Why do they have a monopoly on aesthetics? How can they be part and accountable to communities? How can there be worker democracy in the workplace? How can we dream? Because it seems to us, their idea of returning to normal is getting more shitty money for more shitty people and tell us at least we have the Whitney. And what we'll continue to say and double up on is fuck the Whitney if it's going to be like that. Wow. Um, <laughs> I wonder. I, so now let's talk about things going forward. You guys are not standing still by any means. You're working on a film. You're working on different projects. You've been working on projects since curating and other things all together. What's the focus now? How do you want to communicate to people? Like, give them a little insight into your world. Mm -hmm. Like, what, what's going on at MTL? And what's going on in Decolonize? And where are all these spheres? I mean, the FTP protest, I think, was probably one of the biggest general public impacts I've seen from any of your actions, or at least the actions you've been in solidarity with. I mean, that was everywhere. I mean, people were really... Didn't even, I mean, I didn't even know what was going on. I was like, what's going on here? This whole, like, you know, this, this, all these, all these posts, all these things going on, hearing uh, different kinds of stories. I mean, I think, I think, look, I think that the pandemic has really, every crisis presents a set of challenges and opportunities. And I think that this pandemic is doing that. And what it's asking of us is mammoth. Because it's asking us to, to, to kind of go back to preliminary and you know, just like essential questions of like, what are we doing? Are we doing it well? Can we do it differently? And I think it's important to kind of the conversations that we've had with, you know, just people, friends, whether they be at the American Indian Community House, all these different groups, they're friends to us. And we've been having these conversations. And some of us are fearful that things will go back to normal. But at the same time, we know there is no normal and the conditions are only gonna get worse. So we've been thinking long-term in, in the sense of like, okay, if, if this is a mo if capitalism isn't gonna go away by itself, and that's not even the essential question for us, but how do we live and how do we politicize what we're doing? And how do we build power and how we exercise self-determination every day? And we're pointing to land. The answer to the pandemic is land, at least in terms of leverage. The answer to police brutality is land and autonomy, right? The answer is our relationship to land, which is different than socialism or capitalism, which are all Western concepts of property in different forms. So we're, we're trying to think of that and we're trying to enact it. We know FTP is, is coming back. 
we may not be the movers of it. We may, we may, we, but we are, we know that the groups are talking right now, especially after what has happened during the pandemic. Mm. You know, what happened in Minneapolis? What's happened? I mean, these things are pressing because when power loses social control, it increases the police. Right. And uh, let's not forget <laughs> Homeland Security and ICE. Yeah. They've been very active during the pandemic exactly. because of the stay-at-home orders. So, exactly. So yeah. all of this is happening. So for us, it's just like, okay, how do we build these alternative institutions that can replicate and multiply and in, in a thousand you know, a thousand flowers can bloom. One of the things, for example, they talk about essential workers, but we're thinking about essential tools, bolt cutters. We just came over here. People have signs. They're just like, use the space, no fee. So we're in that, we're in that space right now where there are spaces. We're in those mm. places where we can grow and go into parks and do things. And I think that that's going to, this is what we're pointing to. I think I'm going to go back to the point that you said, which was failure of imagination. I think that if you actually look at it since Occupy, that's what we've been doing, is to actually go against our own failure of imagination and pushing the limits on what's possible. And so in some ways, it's been a journey of failures and successes through that understanding what we did right and what we did wrong and then moving with those. I think with the Whitney, one of the things that was very clear, and as Amin mentioned already, is with the nine weeks, no matter how much work you put in, and, and, and I think it's, I, I also want to say it's not that I'm demanding some return from this work. Oh, I went for like you know we organize this nine weeks something should have happened i think it's also one has to like just put out that energy in the world and not expect anything that's one of the most important things around doing this work so i think that's also one of the reasons why we keep going and like you know we have we have no horizon or we don't have an end goal but we know that there's a process that works for us and we keep going on that and so i think it's a similar thing we we're, we're just pushing the decolonial context land was our starting point even with the brooklyn museum land was our starting point even with the whitney even with the american museum of natural history and we we're going back to that point and making it really clear that you know if you change your relationship to the idea of land the idea of property or ownership and really if you go around the ideas around abolition of you know a society that requires police or uh, abolition of a society that requires borders and hence ice i mean we have to keep the work to actually get to that point and so you know with with the spaces that we're talking about or with the land we're also thinking about what can spaces do and i think this is really important specifically for the art world to think about it if you have space what what is the space actually doing? You know, one of the things that was the most astonishing about artist space was that it had, even though it was in Chinatown, it had really never engaged with the Chinatown community that's at, right there. At all. At, at all. all. But I think that's also true of so many of the spaces. So th that's just one example. What is your space for? And I mean, if, if anything, this pandemic shows you that not many people are going to be using public transportation. Not many offices are going to open. So the way we define work as a society is completely changed. So when, when we're deciding to decide, you know, I think one of the things that is the most disappointing right now is to see how art institutions are running to the idea of normal, the idea of normal and like actually fine with these Zoom conversations or these Zoom panels or these Zoom art without actually questioning the inherent structure of these things, right? These tools that we are using, right? These tools for conversation, these tools for coming together. So I think for us, I think it's important to create those spaces. So the nine weeks, if you thought of the nine weeks and if you went there for any one of those things, 
I came out transformed myself. Like each week something happened to me that made me want to go back again next week. And I think that's the idea that we're carrying from that and then thinking about a space and what it would mean to actually create our own spaces. Not that these spaces will not include impression because I think that oppression exists in the everyday. Like we're both oppressors and the oppressed, like patriarchy, race, ethnic, all of this shit is something that we carry on the everyday level. So the undoing is deep and the unsettling is deep. It involves me as well in the project. And I think that's with the space, with the idea of having a space that gets, you know, accelerated in so many ways. That sounds good. Well, thank you, Natasha. Thank you, Amin. Thank you for always educating me about these issues. And <laughs> thank you, Rob. I look forward to our next conversation. Well, thank you for Best having time. us. This was amazing. What you're listening to, again, are some of the sounds from the October 10th, 2016 anti-Columbus Day protests that was organized by Decolonize This Place and others. Thanks to Amin and Natasha, for their time and coming in during the pandemic to talk to Hyperallergic in our Brooklyn studio. All socially distanced, so don't worry about that. It was a conversation I think we'll be talking about for a long time to come. I'm Harag Vartanyan, the editor-in-chief and co-founder of Hyperallergic. Thanks for listening, and stay safe. I just want to mention, this interview was conducted before the killing of George Floyd at the end of May. But I think you'll agree that the words resonate even today. We cannot learn from Indigenous people! Indigenous people!